When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Hello and welcome to the Forza Napoli Cultural Podcast, a podcast devoted to Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you so much for listening. I have three parts for you today. In part one, we'll cover the latest news, including the drama around the official inauguration of the Stadio Diego Armando Maradona. We'll also provide an injury update, the latest transfer rumors with both our men's and women's teams, and we'll provide a quick update on some of the changes with the Primavera. In part two, we'll review what was a very busy week at Di Maro, and in part three, I'll address a pretty lively debate amongst Napoli Twitter and whether and how the club should have addressed the final match of the 2020-2021 campaign against Hellas Verona. So let's start with the news. The big story this week was the city of Napoli announced that the official inauguration of the Stadio Diego Armando Maradona will be on July 29th at 7pm local time. Included in the inauguration is the unveiling of Mimo Sepe's statue of Maradona, as well as a small concert, I believe. However, there's been some drama between the city and De Laurentiis on this. De Laurentiis noted that on that day, the club would be flying to Germany for their friendly match against Bayern Munich, which is scheduled for the 31st of July. The counselor of sport, Chiro Borello, told Radio Kiss Kiss that he doesn't expect the team to be there, but he would like De Laurentiis to be there. According to Gazzetta dello Sport, someone in the municipality was under the impression that 15,000 people could attend, ignoring that the Draghi government's decree approved in May was for the Euros only, while this event would be limited to only 1,000 attendees. The president of the sports committee of the city, Carmine Scambatti, suggested that all this confusion was caused by De Laurentiis. 
He said he doesn't know the motivation, but that the Laurentiis created a lot of difficulties. He asked that people show up five hours before the event to be tested for fever. He created issues with payments for stewards and on which schools to invite. Sgambati said the city has done everything possible to have a dialogue with the club and that the mayor and councillors have acted in the most logical way possible, but have run into a wall of rubber and anomalous situations. Apparently, De Laurentiis had his own plans, which included another statue designed by Stefano Cenci and produced by Fonderia Nolande. Naturally, De Laurentiis had more grandiose plans, including a multimedia museum that allows you to stay on the field with Maradona via that statue. According to El Matino, the city does still intend to proceed with the event. In other news, we have some injury updates to report. La Repubblica are reporting that Chucky Lozano will return to the club on August 5th for the retreat at Castel di Sangro. That's when Spalletti will really get to work on the team with most international players expected to be back by then. Spalletti admitted this week that he can only really work on the back line since he has all of those players available, at least to the center backs. Meanwhile, Dr. Raffaele Canonico provided a few updates to Il Matino this week. He confirmed that Dries Mertens had surgery because he was dislocating his shoulder too frequently. That is what we expected, even though this was never reported to be an issue, because we were told that Mertens had shoulder stabilization surgery, and that's typically done on people who frequently dislocate their shoulder. Canonico said the medical staff had to intervene during three matches this season. He added that Vlad Kirikas had the same procedure and he took two and a half months to recover, so the club expects Mertens to return at the end of September. So that means if we don't sell Andrea Petania, that he would be the backup striker while Mertens is still recovering. Petania spoke to Radio Kiss Kiss this week, where he said that regardless of the role he's asked to play, he will be ready. He said he can play next to Victor or behind him, and his goal is to play more and to score double digits. I hope he's right, but I think that's highly unlikely. I haven't been terribly impressed with what I've seen from Petania at Di Mauro, but he did say that he hasn't played even a friendly in six months, so hopefully he just needs to shake off the rust. Canonico also commented on Fauzi Gulam. He said Gulam is not at Di Mauro because the equipment he needs to train could not be transported to Di Mauro from Castel Volturno. He said Gulam's rehab is proceeding as expected and a return is expected in October. Moving on, we have a couple of updates on the Mercato. Let's start with our current players. We have a minor update on the Lorenzo Insigne situation. On Wednesday, Spalletti confirmed that De Laurentiis and Insigne have booked the time to meet and discuss the contract. Insigne's father-in-law took to social media to say that Lorenzo wants only Napoli. I'm sure he meant well, but that probably doesn't help Lorenzo in terms of negotiating power. Surely De Laurentiis will at least try to leverage that information to pay Insigne a lower salary than what he asks for. I've seen various rumors on what Insigne's salary demands will be. I don't give any credence to these rumors, so I'm not even going to report those numbers. At left back, Mario Rui spoke to Radio Kiss Kiss on Thursday, where he reiterated what his agent, Mario Giuffredi, has already said, namely that he wants to stay at Napoli. Giuffredi had previously stated that he doesn't sell players after they have a tough season. He wants Mario Rui to stay another season, presumably to increase his value, and therefore increase Giuffredi's potential commission, and then they will sell him. Credit to Mario Rui, though, he does seem to know his role with the club, at least at the moment. He said if the club signs a new player, referring to the left-back position, of course, he will be welcome. He added they will compete for the place in the squad, but most of all, they will compete for Napoli. He recognizes that in all good teams, there are levels. 
In other words, all good teams have depth. Spalletti has repeated a few times that the club needs to have 23 strong players and that he will need to rotate, so I'm sure that gives Mario Rui comfort knowing that even if he doesn't win the starting place, he will still get his opportunities to play. Gennaro Tutino could be heading back to Salernitana. He's been closely linked to Parma, but according to Alfredo Pedula, Napoli are asking for 10 million euros and would go as low as 8 million. Meanwhile, Salernitana have re-entered the race with a potential loan with option to buy. As I've previously mentioned, Tutino would gladly return to the club he helped lift back up to the top flight. Surely he would prefer to play for Salernitana in Serie A than for Parma in Serie B. In terms of potential incoming players, Hetafe president Angel Torres told Calcio Napoli 24 that he hasn't spoken to Napoli about Matthias Oliveira. He said those reports were fabricated by the media and that Oliveira will cost 20 million euros, otherwise he will remain with the club. This makes perfect sense to me. The clubs do not have good relations. You might recall last summer that Torres publicly stated that Laurentiis called him every day to negotiate for Mark Cucurella, which led to a bit of a spat between the two of them. So I can't imagine that Laurentiis is all that eager to hand 20 million euros over to Torres. Tuto Sport thinks that one of Vedat Murici and Felipe Caicedo could leave Lazio since Lazio don't need so many strikers with Sadi playing a 4-3-3. If either were to leave you would expect it would be Caicedo. Surely Lazio want to try to increase Murici's value after he had such a poor first season. And Tuto Sport are suggesting that Napoli could be a destination for Caicedo if Andrea Petagna leaves. This rumor makes absolutely no sense to me for two reasons. First, Caicedo wants to be a starter and we already have Victor for that role. Second, you know that Lotito is going to ask for way more than what Caicedo is actually worth. And you know that De Laurentiis will want to pay less than what he's worth. Even though Caicedo is in peak physical condition... He's still 32 years old. That's actually another reason why I don't see this happening. We generally purchase younger players who we can develop and resell, not players at the end of their career. Finally, Dutch media are reporting that we are linked to PSV's 19-year-old attacking midfielder Mohamed Ihatran. His current contract expires in 2022 and we've done business with PSV in the past. Both Dries Mertens and Chucky Lozano were purchased from PSV. There have been more changes with our Feminile team as well. A few episodes ago, I dedicated nearly an entire segment to review the changes to the Feminile because there have been so many. If you look at our squad list on our club's official website, only four players remain from last season. Paula Di Marino, Depi Chatsi Nicolau, Eleonora Goldoni, and Evi Popadinova. We had a few more additions since our last update, which is what we expected. At the back, we added Cameroonian defender Maria Awande. She has plenty of experience playing in Liga, most recently with Stade de Rem, but also with Dijon, Soyo, and La Mans. She also played for Madrid CFF in Spain. We've also added 19-year-old center back Hedin Corrado. She joins on loan from Roma, where she made 8 appearances last season, 6 of them as a starter. At left back, we've loaned Martina Tognoli from Juventus, though she spent last season at Empoli. Tonioli has made 19 appearances during her time at Empoli. Another fullback that joins Napoli is Sede Abramson. She's capable of playing on both sides and has experience playing for Orebo, Hamarby, and Patea in the Swedish league and Sevilla in Spain. In the midfield, we added Emma Severini from Roma. She's only 17 years old, so this move is consistent with President Carlino's approach to signing talented young players. 
Severini won back-to-back Scudetti playing for Roma's Primavera team and has already made six appearances in Serie A. We've also loaned Sofia Colombo from Inter after she spent last season on loan at Hellas Verona. She made 13 appearances last season, 9 of them as a starter. Finally, we've added Sara Tui to the midfield. She was a key player for Madrid CFF over the last two seasons, where she scored 5 goals in 39 appearances. I'll close part 1 with a quick update on our Primavera team. Nicolo Frustalupi will be the new Napoli Primavera coach. Corriere del Mezzogiorno broke that story. Frustalupi was an assistant to Walter Mazzari when he coached at Napoli, so this is a bit of a homecoming for him. Frustalupi's staff includes deputy Giorgio Di Vicino, athletic trainer Attilio Vazzaturo, and goalkeeper trainer Antonio D'Ambrosio. The Primavera completed their medical and COVID tests on Tuesday and commenced their summer training at Castel Volturno on Wednesday. The Primavera will be at Castel Volturno until August 7th, and they have already booked a couple of friendlies. The Azzurini are scheduled to play their first friendly of the summer against Avellino on July 28th. Reports suggest that a second friendly has been booked on August 3rd in Torre del Greco against Turis, but that has yet to be confirmed. That will do for part 1. In part 2, I'll provide an update on the last week at Di Mauro. I'll tell you all you need to know about our last week of training. It was definitely a busy week at Di Maro. We continue to have twice daily training sessions. I'll provide a quick summary of the highlights of each section along with some commentary. On Wednesday night, there was a fan Q&A session at the Piazza Madonna della Pace in Di Maro. It wasn't terribly informative, but I'll incorporate some relevant points as I go through the training sessions. There were plenty of autographs to go around. There was a formal session on Monday with Victor Osiman, Mario Rui, and Diego Deme. As you might expect, Osiman was the most popular player. Also throughout the week, the players and staff obliged fans' requests to sign shirts and various memorabilia. I'll touch on that as I work through the training sessions as well. Finally, new merchandise showed up at the club shop. Normally, that's not something I'm terribly interested in, but given our kit situation, I am following this story a bit more closely. We know our kits will be self-produced, so any new self-produced merchandise that shows up is a bit of a hint of what to expect with the new kits. So let's start with the morning session on Monday, which was the first after the friendly match against Bassa Anaunia. 
Nikita Contini was absent from this session, he did custom work in the pool. The session started with Spalletti providing instructions on the blackboard in the gym before the players took the pitch. Very curiously, for part of the session, Spalletti played Andrea Pitania in behind Victor Osiman, which allowed Elmas and Politano to burst forward. That sounds like a very Spalletti thing to do, and it seemed to work well. All four of those players stood out but especially Politano. On Wednesday, he was asked by a fan what he regretted more, not being called up to the Azzurri or failing to qualify for the Champions League. He picked the latter, which I think was the right choice, if not only because the crowd at the conference on Wednesday seemed prepared to argue. He also confirmed what we suspected, which is that under Spalletti, we will look to dominate possession. I highly doubt we would start a match with Patania and Osman together, whether beside each other or one in front of the other, but I see this being a different look. Perhaps this is something we try to use when the score is tied and the 4-2-3-1 isn't working. Maybe Zielinski's struggling to get into the match. Spalletti can replace Zielinski with Patania and completely change the look of the attack. Once again, the focus this session was on quick passes and triangulation, this time using dummies on the pitch. Victor Osman scored a lovely chip over Idasiak, which drew a thunderous response from the fans in attendance. In the afternoon, Adam Unas and Amato Cicciretti did personalized work in the gym. Luca Palmiero was forced to leave training after colliding with Diego Demme. The next day, the club confirmed that Palmiero suffered a first-degree sprain to his left ankle, so he will be out for approximately a month. Apparently, there was a minor incident between Gennaro Tutino and Filippo Costa during the scrimmage as well. Tutino wasn't happy that Costa didn't pass to him when he was open, so Spalletti stepped in to get them back on track. But without a doubt, the highlight from Monday was the return of Piotr Zielinski. Apparently, he asked to take the pitch immediately so he could greet his teammates and most of all to meet his new coach. He also greeted technical coach Francesco Calzona, who we mentioned last episode was Maurizio Sarri's assistant during his time at Napoli. Zielinski didn't actually take the pitch, though he spent his session in the gym. The session ended with a bit of fun. Zinedine Mashash challenged Kevin Malqui to a foot race. Malqui won with ease, and then Mashash accused Malqui of getting a head start. There was supposed to be an autograph session with Koulibaly, Elmes, and Lobotka after the afternoon session, but that was cancelled. And speaking of Lobotka, Corriere dello Sport reported this week that he dropped 6 kilos, which is about 13 pounds, with the help of two nutritionists on Canonico staff, Vincenzo Monda and Marco Ruffolo. Moving on to Tuesday's session, Zielinski continued to work in the gym. He completed his medical and athletic tests before doing work on the treadmill and the stationary bike. Mato Cicciretti and Adam Unas only completed part of the group training and then they did personalized training. Our defenders practiced retreating in line with the drone recording their movements. Apparently Costas Manolas was very vocal in commanding his back line. It's good to see he's taking on that leadership role, particularly with some of the younger players at Dimaro. We all know that Koulibaly is the captain at the back, but he's more of a silent leader and so far at Dimaro Spalletti has split them up. At the end of the session, Kevin Malqui had a long conversation with Daniela Baldini, and Victor Osman had a private session with Marco Domenichini. It was Osman that stole the show at the end of the session, giving a shirt to a young fan who had a sign asking him for his shirt. Osman has easily been the most popular player amongst the fans at Di Mauro. He is constantly being asked for an autograph, and credit to him, he seems to be giving the fans what they want. Victor stole the show, but not too far behind was Tommy Stadice. He put on a little dance show himself, for the fans after the session ended. 
President De Laurentiis was on the sidelines to take in the afternoon session, which wasn't terribly informative. Manolas took a bit of a stomp while training in the bowl, but he was able to continue. Manolas is one of those players like Ospina who always seems to get hurt, but always manages to continue. As has been the case with most sessions, this one ended with a bit of fun as well. Spalletti split the squad into two teams to compete in a tug of war. I have to be honest, when I saw this, I was just praying that no one would get hurt. Thankfully, nobody did. Each side won once, but the second side had a lot of fun with it. They celebrated like a team that had just won a cup, including taking a team photo. A common theme at DiMato has been private sessions after training, and this session was no exception. All four center backs stayed behind for a pretty animated conversation with Spalletti and his technical staff. I don't want to put ideas in people's heads, and I'm convinced that we'll play a 4-2-3-1. But just for a minute or so, Manolas, Koulibaly, and Rachmani were holding a line and pushing up together, and I couldn't help but think that that looked like a three-man back line. There was no morning session on Wednesday. Spalletti took the opportunity to attend the funeral of chef and friend of Marcello Lippi, Antonio Canese. Spalletti returned for the afternoon session, which was predominantly a scrimmage. We've seen Spalletti use a scrimmage in almost every session, and we did talk about this a little while ago. We talked about a Chiesa di Totti piece that talked about what went wrong for Spalletti and Roma, and one of the things they picked on was Spalletti's antiquated training sessions. One thing he likes to do is try to replicate what an 11v11 game is like in training, and we're seeing a lot of that at Dimaro. He's very involved and he stops the sessions fairly regularly to provide direction and correct any errors he's observed. He's very focused on precision, particularly with respect to players' movements. A few players picked up minor knocks during the session. Once again, Manolas went to ground before carrying on. Michael Foloruncho and Stanislav Lobotka collided with the former getting the worst of it. Foloruncho left the pitch momentarily but completed the session. Likewise, Osman collided with Sebastiano Luperto. Osman stayed down for a while, but thankfully he was okay too. Once again, Zelinski trained in the gym, and then when he finished, he had a long conversation with Spalletti on the bench. And also, once again, Malqui remained out on the pitch after the session ended. He had a private session with Domenichini, working on ball control and tackling. Even Spalletti joined at the end of that mini-session. No player at Dimaro has had more private sessions than Malqui, which leads me to believe that the club is seriously considering keeping him on this season. If we do, I think he would be a backup fullback. I don't think we would move Di Lorenzo to the left and play Malqui on the right. We might do that occasionally, especially if we don't sign another left back, but I don't see that being a permanent change. Meanwhile, a handful of players played a last-man standing type of game. One of the trainers had passed the ball to the edge of the area, and the players were allowed one touch to control the ball and a second touch to shoot. Those who missed were eliminated, and those who scored advanced until there was no one left. And surprisingly, the last man standing was Filippo Costa. On Thursday morning, Piotr Zielinski finally returned to the field to train with his teammates and immediately made his presence known, scoring the first goal of the training match. Zielinski was asked the night before what caused the leap in quality last season. He said he learned from a champion in Matic Hamsik, and while he was satisfied in terms of goals, he still has much to learn. I'm very curious to see how Spalletti uses Zielinski. We know he'll be in the number 10, I don't think there are many doubts about that, but some have suggested that Spalletti could use him as his Simone Perotta. People give Spalletti plenty of credit for inventing the false 9, but we don't often talk about how he also reinvented the 10. Perotta scored his share of goals making overlapping runs, which suggests that Zielinski could score even more than the 10 goals that he scored last season, but I have my doubts about this. Zielinski can score goals, I don't doubt that, but Perotta benefited from Francesco Totti playing as a false 9. 
That allowed the two of them to interchange positions with Totti dropping deep and Perota getting forward. Osman's not a false nine, he's a true nine, and though he has an excellent touch and he is a good passer, he cannot pass the ball like Francesco Totti did, very few players can. So I don't expect Zielinski to play like Perota did, at least not when Osman starts, however, that could be something we see if Dries Mertens plays as the false nine. Back to the training session, Valerio Bofelli was not with the goalkeepers on Thursday. There was some speculation that he returned to Castel Volturno to join the Primavera squad, but Calcio Napoli 24 confirmed with sources close to the player that he sat out the session due to muscle fatigue. Spalletti's focus this session was on playing out of the back with the attackers and retreating with the defenders. He also had the forwards and midfielders press the ball. At the end of the session, Spalletti had separate individual conversations with Zielinski, Elmas, and Koulibaly, while Osman had a quick conversation with Cristiano Giuntoli. Diego Deme got a lovely ovation from the fans at Carciato. As he was walking off the pitch, they sang the chant that was often sung to his namesake, Diego Maradona. It was Koulibaly's turn to have a private session with Spalletti on Thursday. The two spent about 15 minutes together working on Koulibaly's positioning. Naturally, Spalletti is quite fond of Koulibaly. On Wednesday, he was asked what he would do to keep Koulibaly, and his response was to keep him, I will chain myself somewhere, find me something, and I will chain myself there. Finally, Spalletti made sure to greet the fans at the end of the session in a snide kind of way. He literally said, this time I greeted you, ciao. That was a reaction to one of the fan questions the night before when one fan accused the club of not being close to the fans. It got pretty heated between the fan and Napoli's head of communication, Nicolo Lombardo. Now, I don't know what motivated that fan. Perhaps it was the lack of communication at the end of the season, which I'll talk about in part three. But I thought this question was a little ridiculous. Raspoletti said it was a bit excessive. We've been dealing with a pandemic for the last 18 months. And the rules, which were created to allow football to continue in the first place, prohibited players from being in contact with the fans. Before the afternoon session, Spalletti spent some time dribbling the ball with Gianluca Gaetano in the pouring rain. Costas Manolas did not participate in this session, which was interrupted for about 20 minutes as a storm passed through Di Maro. The players scrambled to the gym to get out of the storm. When the rain settled, the players resumed their scrimmage and Spalletti increased the intensity, asking the team to play quicker. For the first time at the Mauro, Elmas and Zielinski played together. Zielinski played in his usual 10 spot, so Elmas shifted over to play in Insigne's spot on the left wing. I really liked Elmas training in the 10, so this gave me cause for concern. Elmas could end up being that role player that can slot into a variety of positions like we saw last season. He should still benefit from the training, though with Mertens out at the start of the season, Elmas will likely be the first off the bench to replace Zielinski, and we could see that done in a couple of ways. Elmas could be a straight swap with Zielinski in the 10, or we could take Zielinski out, moving Senia into the 10, and play Elmas on the left. Spalletti was asked about Elmas's characteristics on Wednesday. He said he's comfortable in many roles and he takes direction well. He did say Elmas relies a little too much on his running and endurance, but if you don't have that, it can be very difficult. As we suggested, Spalletti said he could be a midfielder because he knows to do a bit of everything, and he is connected to the ball. A few players remained out on the pitch at the end of this session. Costa, Zedadka, Elmas, and Osman remained and took shots at Bayetti and Idasiak. Finally, we had two sessions on Friday to conclude training at Di Mauro. Bofelli returned after sitting out Thursday's session while Manolas spent the morning in the gym. As usual, Cristiano Giuntoli was on the bench to observe the training session, but this time he was joined by CEO Andrea Cavelli and head of scouting Maurizio Michelli. 
At the end of the session, Giuntoli gave Spalletti his feedback while the two walked together towards the dressing rooms. The morning session was dedicated to set pieces, starting with corner kicks before moving on to free kicks. At the end of the session, a few players stayed out to take penalty kicks on Nikita Contini, who made saves on both Mario Rui and Elif Elmas. Moving on to the afternoon, De Laurentiis was back to take in the final training session at Di Mauro. Even he was asked to sign some merchandise and he happily obliged. I imagine De Laurentiis isn't asked for his signature too often. Manolas continued with personalized training, as did Kevin Malqui for the afternoon. They worked specifically with Baldini and Domenichini. Spalletti had the team work on playing out of the back. At the other end, he set up Foloruncho, Luperto, and Costa in a three-man backline. To me, that wasn't an indication that we will play with a three-man backline. Rather, it was preparation for our friendly against Pro Vercelli on Saturday, which will probably have already been played by the time you hear this episode. Gennaro Tutino was forced to leave training due to muscle fatigue. He's been excellent at the model, which is great to see. At the moment, with unimpressive offers for Koulibaly and no news on Fabian, Tutino could be our biggest sale this summer. Between players like Tutino, Unas, and Luperto, we might just be able to generate enough cash to purchase Emerson Palmieri, or at least partially offset the cost of Emerson, while still keeping Mario Rui, who's determined to stay. With Tutino out, young goalkeeper Francesco Baietti, of all people, filled in in the attack for the balance of the session. Let's close part two with the latest self-produced merchandise to show up at the club shop at Di Mauro. Thankfully, the merchandise that appeared this week is much nicer than the caricature shirts we saw in the first week. At least that's what I think. The first new item showed up on Tuesday. It was a dark blue heavy jacket, which was quite simple. It has the Napoli logo on the chest and the text SSC Napoli stitched on the back. The jacket appears to have been produced by Zeus, though there is no Zeus logo on it and it was being sold for 69 euros. That does make you wonder whether Zeus will be manufacturing the new kits. Two t-shirts arrived on Thursday, both of which were offered in black and white. One is a kid's shirt that has the first two lines of Saro Conte, which is being sold for 20 euros. I'm not sure how I feel about this. It started with Spalletti calling this our slogan. It's not really a slogan, it's a song. Then the club put it on the training pennies, which I was okay with. That's a way for the club to connect with its fans. But now it's appearing on t-shirts and it feels to me like the club is trying to capitalize on the song. The other shirt was an adult t-shirt with the Napoli logo on the right side of the chest and a pocket on the left side. The pocket has the Argentina style stripes that we had on our fourth kit last season and that one is being sold for 30 euros. Finally, four more t-shirts arrived on Friday. The first is black and says love on the front, like the famous love sign in Philadelphia, but the O is the Napoli logo. The second is dark blue and again has the first two lines of Saro Conte. The third comes in white and black and says Yo Chero, which means I was there on the front in script. And the fourth also comes in black and white and it simply says SSC Napoli on the front with a bit of a text effect. The Lochero shirt costs 15 euros and the other three are 20 euros. So like I said, I think these are a bit of an improvement over what we saw in the first week at Di Mauro. That will do for part two. In part three, we'll close the book on the Napoli-Verona match and finally move on.
close the pod with a discussion that started with a pretty lively debate on Napoli Twitter. Before I even get into it, let me just say one thing I love about Napoli Twitter is that we can have different opinions and we can debate our points of view respectfully, so credit to everyone who engaged in that discussion. The subject of the debate was Napoli's response or lack thereof after the draw to Hellas Verona to end the 2020-2021 campaign. This subject reared its ugly head after Spalletti, Politano, and Zielinski took questions from fans on Wednesday night at the Piazza Madonna della Pace in Di Mauro. One of the fans asked about the Verona match. There are many fans who feel like the club owes them an explanation for what happened on that day. There are fans who have their conspiracy theories about what happened. For instance, some think this performance was a protest of sorts because the players wanted Gattuso to stay and they were told ahead of the match, regardless of the result, that he would not be renewed. Now, I think Spalletti gave the correct response, which was that we need to move on. We cannot live in the past. We can't replay that match. What happened, happened, and we have to look forward. I completely agree with that, and I completely agree with all of our fans who said essentially the same thing. We can't change the result, and we cannot let that affect us moving forward. We have to move on. I also don't think that question should have been addressed to Spalletti because he's the one guy who wasn't there last season, so how could he possibly respond to a question like that? However, my issue is how the club handled this situation altogether. If you listen to this podcast regularly, you know that I try not to rag on De Laurentiis too much, and I appreciate everything he's done for this club, but in my mind, this situation is on him. He's the one who decided when to end the press silence, and he didn't end it until months after that match. Now, De Laurentiis has stated that the reason he didn't end the press blackout right away was because he wanted to protect Gattuso. I want to believe that's true, I really do, but the skeptic in me thinks that decision was motivated by selfish reasons. Perhaps De Laurentiis was concerned that Gattuso would spill the beans on things that De Laurentiis did not want the public to know. I can understand why he froze out the media during the season, because that actually seemed to work, or at least it coincided with a run of positive results, but once the season ended, I didn't see the need for the press blackout to go on for so long. So I don't blame the players, because they were instructed by the club not to speak to the media, and as we saw with Elif Elmas last season, if you break the silence, you're subject to fines from the club. So realistically, the only way to address the fans was either through De Laurentiis himself, or through a public statement, and I think the fans deserved at least that much. The players and the club make a lot of money, and a big part of that is through the support of the fans. Most, if not all, clubs lost money last season, and it's because they did not have fans in the stadiums. Naturally, the next question is, what should such a statement have said? I think this is where the debate got a bit heated. If you were looking for the club to come out and validate those conspiracy theories, to come out and say that we didn't want to win, or worse, that we threw the game intentionally, then of course they're not going to say that. And I think the small subset of fans that buy into conspiracy theories are not going to be satisfied with any response that they get from the club. Personally, I don't buy into any of the conspiracy theories. I've said this on the podcast before, but I think it was in the best interest of both the players and the coach to win this match. All players want to play in the Champions League. It's the premier European competition in the world. 
Most players have bonuses tied to qualifying for the Champions League as well, and if you play for Napoli, there would be no greater satisfaction than qualifying for the Champions League and in so doing ensuring that Juventus do not qualify as well. In Gattuso's case, even if he knew his contract would not be renewed, and even if he knew he would be working for Fiorentina, he did not want a reputation as a coach who can get you extremely close to qualifying, but always falling short. It happened at Milan, and now it's happened at Napoli. Now he's without a job, and I suspect he's going to coach mid-table teams going forward, or perhaps teams in crisis that need to be set straight. That's why I thought Fiorentino was a perfect landing spot for him, but that's a whole other story wrought with its own conspiracy theories regarding Gattuso's agent, George Mendez. Back to our fans, in my opinion, most fans were just looking for some form of communication, some form of closure on the season. I think the club could have issued a statement saying how disappointed they were with the result, acknowledging that no match is a given and that Verona is a strong club who can take points away from any team on any given day, even if they didn't mean it and even if they're just the usual comments that athletes make to the media, they could have apologized to the fans for letting them down. And they could have reassured the fans that they will do everything they can to make up for it this upcoming season. Even though that doesn't specifically explain what went wrong in that match, I think that would have at least given some fans some closure. And I'm not suggesting that the club should issue a public statement every time the club drops points, but this was the final game of the season. And quite frankly, even though I think we played better during the press blackout, I think it should be mandatory for the coach and a player or two to speak to the media after every match, like we saw last season during the Europa League. These are professional athletes, professional coaches, they're paid millions of euros, and for me, part of the job is to address the media, to address the public, even after a poor result, and even when you don't want to. Had they done so, those fans who wanted an explanation could have closed the book on the 2020-21 campaign and moved on. But the club didn't comment, they stayed silent, at least until De Laurenti spoke a couple of weeks ago, and all the while this was festering, the silence only fueled those conspiracy theories. Now, when De Laurentiis broke the silence, he did briefly address this match. He talked about the disappointment and he correctly pointed out that there were other results as well that caused us to miss the Champions League. This was the most recent match, but when you fall short by a single point, there are numerous moments throughout the season that you can point to, but fans had to wait a long time to hear that. No player addressed this match until this week when Andrea Petania spoke to Radio Kiss Kiss and said that he has thought many times about the header in this match referring to the one that hit the upright. He said it was a bitter page for everyone, especially the fans, and they are so sorry. That goes a long way with the fans. It just took too long. Even when De Laurenti spoke about it, he still sounded like he didn't have an answer. He was only providing his perspective, but he said he would sit down with the players at Di Mauro and ask them, though he wasn't expecting much of a response. Also, quite a few players who played in that match are not at Di Mauro, Insigne, Di Lorenzo, Lozano, Fabian Mertens, so information would be limited even if De Laurentiis spoke to the players. But given all of that, can you fault fans for bringing it up? You might disagree with me, but I say no. So that will do it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and give us a 5-star rating on your favorite podcast platform. As always, if you need to get a hold of me, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti5, or you can find the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pod. 
I'll be back next week to review our friendly on Saturday against Pro Vercelli. But until next time, I'm Joe Fischetti. Forza Napoli sempre. Network.